Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and I'm really happy to see so many of you here um, to hear Dr. Carl Alexander talk about the long shadow family background, disadvantaged urban youth, and the transition to adulthood. Um, I think, as many of you know, if you've heard him uh, interviewed on radio, he spent 25 years um, following 800 predominantly low-income Baltimore children um, to and followed their lives. And he, I'm not going to say anything about his research because he's going to um, tell you the conclusions. He has a wonderful slide presentation. And um, after, the, after he finishes that, he's going to be in conversation with Dee Watkins, who's sitting here at the table, and he's a local teacher and author. And um, so this will make it even more interesting for, the two of, for you to hear the two of them converse, and then you'll also be able to ask questions of them. Um, Dr. Carl Alexander recently retired as the John Dewey Professor of Sociology at Johns Hopkins University. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Carl Alexander. Uh, thank you, Judy, and uh, thanks also to the good people at the Pratt Library for extending me this opportunity to share with you this project of mine. You know, the, the Pratt is a real gem. Uh, we all know that, and, uh, and I'm so flattered to be in the, uh, in the company of the Pratt speakers over the years. It's really quite an august program. Judy, Judy, who's going about her business, uh, takes, deserves full credit for it. She's also a gem. So thank you, Judy. Uh, I also want to thank Dee Watkins for being here. Uh, Dee and I, uh, we just met. So I think we think we bonded. We've done okay. Yeah. Uh, but we did an NPR show a while back, and we seem to play off one another very well. And, and, and enjoy. I certainly enjoyed the experience. And Dee's here, so I suspect that means he did also. Um, so we thought we'd uh, give it a second go, and it was very, it's very good of Dee to be here. Uh, so I'm the uh, academic researcher, and this is an academic research book, but I don't think it's a boring one. I hope it's not. Uh, so I can, I'll try to give the perspective from one high. That's my job. And Dee has been out and about. If you're familiar with his background, he can help by filling in some of the street-level uh, perspective that, uh, that, I, that I can't bring to bear on the experiences of these, of these 800 or so youngsters that, whose lives we followed over 25 years. Judy mentioned that I'm recently, recently retired, and that's true. I was in the sociology department at Hopkins for many years. I am retired, but old habits are hard to break, so I'm going to start with a quiz. <laughs> the long shadow. Um, what, do you, what imagery do you, uh, do you think that's intended to convey? It's not self-evident. Uh, I've always been fond of, a, of catchy titles, and I think this is one, but what, is, what would you take it to mean? Misery. Misery? Yeah, the shadow of... That's one possibility. Actually, the very first cover image that the publisher uh, sent me for the book had the uh, shadow figures behind a fence, and it looked too much like they were incarcerated, which really wasn't the impression at all that we wanted to make, so there, that is a possibility. But that's not quite right. Anybody other one? Anyone else want to take a stab at it? Because yes, please. The history of families and the impact in terms of what it does even in the future. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly the sense of it. It's the long shadow, the long shadow of family background, the influence on children's 
uh, development initially in school and then later on into later in life. Um, and in the book, we uh, we try to understand the importance of family for children's development, uh, both in, in the interior of family life, but also in terms of the neighborhood experiences that children are exposed to, because families decide where to live, and so neighborhood follows family, and also in terms of their schools, the schools that they attend. So family, neighborhood, and schools are, in, in the literature that I read, they're sometimes referred to as overlapping spheres of influence. Those are the institutional settings the children experience up close and personal, and, uh, and it sets them off on very different kinds of life trajectories. So that's fundamentally what the book is about. The subtitle is uh, Family Background, Disadvantaged Urban Youth, and the Transition to Adulthood. So it packages all that together, and we did follow these, these children, typical Baltimore school children, about 800, starting first grade in 1982, and we followed them for 25 years until they were age 28, 29, almost on on the verge of turning 30. So from childhood into mature adulthood, it's quite a sweep. Um, so the imagery suggests the focus of the book. I want to start with a, a quote that appeared in the New York Times last year. Uh, Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel laureate economist. When Nobel laureate economists speak from on high, people tend to listen. In this op-ed piece that he published, he characterized equal opportunity as a national myth. Now, that can, might seem shocking to many, but in point of fact, that's been long understood. And, and that was our intuition when we launched this project back in the early 80s, because we want to understand how equal opportunity played out or did not play out very well in the lives of the children we were studying. He goes on to say, the life prospects of an American are more dependent on the income and education of his parents than in almost other, any other advanced industrial country. That's based on empirical research that's accumulated over the years. We didn't have that fund of knowledge when the project launched, but it doesn't surprise me, and maybe it won't surprise you. Uh, the research that compares across nation states tends to look at movement up and down the income ladder. So if your, if your parents were in the bottom quartile or quintile of income, what are the prospects for you to rising to the top quartile or quintile? And in point of fact, the evidence quite compelling across many studies is that uh, we aren't the land of opportunity, and at least not distinctively so, that we like to think. That's aspirational, it's not a reality. Um, some children, many children in fact, do move up. We don't want to uh, lose sight of that. But those are the exceptions to a very real rule, and, and the rule predominates in the experiences of the youngsters that we study. So I want to get right on to two big takeaway points, because when I, I may go off the topic and never get around to it. So um, 25 years of research led us to the, what we characterize as two success narratives. And basically, they, uh, they involve aspects of family advantage or family privilege. We thought, when we started out, that the book was going to be about school, doing well with school as the stepping stone to moving up the ladder. Okay? And the book does cover a lot of those issues. We go into great detail on the experiences of these youngsters as they move through the elementary school years and middle grades and high school and then on into college for some. But in point of fact, very few of the children we characterize as urban disadvantaged at the outset who grew up in families of low income, uh, where the 98% of, that's about half the total group, so in round numbers 400, 98% of their parents qualified for reduced price or free meals at lunch, which is a standard for, people refer to it as poverty often, but it's above the poverty level, but you're not doing very well if you qualify for meal subsidies at school. Typical parent, 
that we, of the urban disadvantaged, did not finish high school. Average years of schooling was 10.4, as I recall, but no need to quibble. It's between 10 and 11. It's not a high school graduate. That's the typical parent. And that holds for white parents as well as African-American parents. Uh, poor whites in places like Baltimore get very little attention in the literature on the urban, urban poor and urban poverty, but they're out there, and in surprisingly large numbers, it's important to recognize their experience. And as a, um, their experience growing up and, and later in life provides interesting contrast with those of the African-American poor that we studied. 40% of the urban disadvantaged in this uh, sample of ours are, are white, 40%. A fourth of the panel were middle class by conventional standards. Their parents pleaded high school, went on to college, 30% of them went on to college, and a third of those had college degrees. So those aren't the wealthiest of the wealthy, as you might imagine. These were all families that started out in Baltimore public schools back in the 80s, which, which was at the time and still is predominantly a low-income minority enrollment system. So if our sampling had extended to the wealthier counties, you would see even larger differences than what we're able to observe. But these are very meaningful differences, and they make a very meaningful difference in the life opportunities of these children. So what we find when we talk to them at age 28, which was our last uh, interview cycle, only 4% of the children of working class background of the urban disadvantaged had baccalaureate degrees, 4%. 45% of middle, middle class children, children of middle class background, had a baccalaureate degree or beyond. Actually, we had six PhDs in the mix and a number of master's degrees, so don't necessarily stop at the BA now. 45% against 4%, that's a tenfold difference. That's really quite extraordinary. We expected disparities. We didn't, we didn't expect it of that magnitude. They did well. They did well. Hmm? They did all right. The 4%. Yeah. Yeah, but the 96% uh, were lagging behind. <coughs> And it's not for one of interest, and it's not for one of trying. There were uh, issues of, of, of being strong, well-prepared academically for college. That's a reality. But about a third, of, a third of the urban disadvantaged started down the college path, but they weren't able to see it through. Children with a middle-class background are much more likely to succeed, succeed at what they begin. So if they attend college, they're more likely to complete programs. There are reasons for that. So you said income, higher income wealth, you can succeed. Is that what you're I'm saying it's income. It's more than income. I'll get to that. But income is a big, it gives you a big advantage. Having a, a, a wealthier family offers opportunities the poor family can't. But it's more than just money. It's not driven exclusively by money. Okay, good. Okay. Um, so this path for moving up in life, or at least holding on to an advantage position, really privileges uh, children of middle class background over the urban disadvantage, and there are a whole host of reasons for that, income being one. As we get into it, I'll, I'll go through some of the considerations that we identified. But realizing that not many poor children in Baltimore, oh, let me just add that if we extend, the, if we, if we extend coverage a bit and to include the two-year community college system, which is very extensive in Baltimore and is intended to be a point of entree for for low-income children because it's, the community colleges are more affordable and they're more accessible and, uh, and the majority nationally of low-income children start college in the two-year two system. But in the experiences of our study youngsters who are typical of Baltimore, uh, only about one and a half percent who started in a community college, about 20 percent did, only about one and a half percent finished a two-year degree. So even if you use a more expansive or inclusive definition of college completion, 
We're talking about five, five and a half percent of poor kids growing up from Baltimore, finishing college. 30 to 35 percent start college, and at age 28, 80 percent, 80 percent say that they intend to get additional schooling. So it's not as though these youngsters are turned off the school or don't see the value of school, but there are hurdles all along the way that they have to negotiate and holds them back. Anyway, uh, seeing that the path that the, the educational system doesn't really work very well for many of these youngsters, we were obliged to kind of look around and see if there are other insights or other ways of getting ahead in life that perhaps don't require a college degree. And we found one. And um, I have to say it was a, at the outset, it was something of a surprise to us, what we found, but as we probed it, and, and uh, we, could see, we could see a very consistent picture emerging. And that has to do, that has to do with, uh, with being successful in the uh, blue-collar labor market, being able to find heady, steady work and high-wage high work without the benefit of a college degree in the blue-collar economy. But what's so striking was that working-class men, white, working, white men of working-class background, were most successful in accessing that kind of work. And it was employment in the high-wage, high-skill uh, construction and industrial crafts, things like plumbing, electrician, welders, auto mechanics, and the like. You see from the figures that we've entered here, at age 28, 45% of white men of working class background were working in that sector of the economy, which really seems to me quite extraordinary because you hear all the time about how deindustrialization, the loss of manufacturing, and then the loss of retail and white flight out of the city has really wrecked havoc on the local economy, and it has, that's real, but there are still jobs out there. Um, you know, you see construction cranes around the city. There's still ships coming into the port of Baltimore to be unloaded. Um, best deal is no more, but uh, they're still they're, they're doing road repairs on the, uh, uh, on the streets of Baltimore and under the streets of Baltimore in desperate need of fixing up. Those are kind of the big jobs and the, the big uh, employers, but there are literally hundreds, probably thousands of small jobbers. If you need your electricity upgraded or uh, storm windows installed or a hot water heater uh, put in, you won't have any trouble finding people to help you do that. So there are still jobs out there. The large issue today is who gets them. Now these jobs aren't as abundant as they once were, and they're not as dependable. You know, they don't, they're not, it's not a lifetime guarantee. But for folks who are trying to get on in their lives without the benefit of a college degree, these are really prime jobs. And what we find in the experiences of our study youngsters is that this high-wage, high-skill, industrial construction craft sector is almost the exclusive preserve of white men of working-class background, 45%. 15% of our African-American men at age 28 were working in that sector, so there is a presence there. But they're relegated substantially to the low-skill, low-wage work in that sector of the economy. When we asked about annual earnings, and we've done this on a number of occasions, so we get reliable information, the whites who were working in this sector of the economy were earning almost twice what the African-Americans were earning. So there's a second success narrative. It doesn't have anything to do with doing well in school. It has to do with being able to access good jobs, good steady employment, and high-wage jobs. And that also is a form of family privilege, we, can, we, we believe, we conclude. But it works through different mechanisms. It's mainly a matter of uh, social networks, having access to these jobs, people who can open doors for you. Uh, we have a slide. Maybe I'll get to it, but I'll mention it here. We track these youngsters, we ask them about their history of vocational development and their work experience back through high school and beyond and before high school, even in the middle grades. 
But in high school, when we asked about their part-time jobs and summer work, 20%, actually a little over 20%, of white men of working class background had, were employed in that sector of the economy, in what we classify as the industrial and construction crafts and trades. Now, they weren't plumbers or electricians or welders, but they were helping out. They were helping a father who worked in that area. They were helping an uncle, a neighbor across the street. They had access to these jobs, and it was good training and good preparation for moving into them when they did mature and strike it and struck out on their own. That was 20%, 20-plus percent in high school. Not a single African-American man of like background was working in that sector, had a part-time or summer job in that sector of the economy. So there is a pattern of family advantage here that plays out in the blue-collar economy that is often, I think, hidden from view. And, um, and so the book, The Long Shadow, is substantially about these two patterns of vocational and educational development success, if you will. You go into considerable detail trying to kind of un unpack it to see how it happens over time, over, over the experiences of these young people. I haven't said anything about women, um, and that's not for one of interest. Uh, we, what we find in terms of the women of working class background, 70% of them as young adults at age 28 are employed in the low wage, low skill uh, retail and clerical and service positions. So they're, they're relegated substantially to the traditional pink power work. They certainly haven't penetrated the high skill, high wage uh, construction industrial crafts. So their earnings lie behind, as do African American, the, the earnings of African American men. Those with a college degree are doing substantially better, thank you. It's no surprise in that. Um, they, uh, they register higher earnings and higher year, and more, a higher percentage of college graduates. Uh, but even there, there are some gender differences. What we find is that the white men of middle class background, as young adults, are more likely to be employed in the managerial and technical sectors high-wage professional work, women are more likely to be employed in the professions, nurses, nurses, teachers, social workers, where earnings are a bit below those in the executive and managerial sectors. So there are stories, there are, there's a, there are stories embedded in here about differences uh, by gender, male-female differences, differences by race, and differences by family background, uh, conditions of family life growing up. Um, Dee, you should jump in if, you, if you're inspired. Um, yeah, so I think the research in The Long Shadow was very important um, for a number of reasons. One, these are things that we've been saying in the African-American community for years. Um, I'll give you a dose of my own reality. Um, as we joked about when I first came in, Carl and I, I'm on the front cover of Johns Hopkins Magazine, the University of Baltimore MFA um, website is about to do a feature and put me on that front cover and I have maybe three or four years of teaching experience. The University of Baltimore teaches my essays in a number of their classes but yet they won't hire me. None of these schools. So, you know, there's, a, there's something else that we say as far as um, where being black you feel like you have to be 20 times better. Like you have to be flawless. You have to be a super force to penetrate um, into some of these places. So um, I think the Long Shadow does a great job of just putting a lot of these arguments. I'm sorry. You do have to be, if you're a blind man, you have to be up three or four times. Yeah, I outwork every person in every English department I've ever saw in my life, ever. Like I said, I teach five classes now. I just wrote two articles for the city paper, one for Hoverton Post and two for Salon, and I'm finishing my book that's due November 4th. 
So, you know, it's like it, it, it never, ever, 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 ever stops. Um, right now at Coppin and at Sir Joyner Douglas and there's some TA work at Morgan. So, you know, again, again, um, I think that now that we have this information and it's laid out, what do we do? How do we use this information and apply it so that we can change some of these things? How do we open up privilege for everyone? Because um, even the comment that was made earlier about having access to income about um, having access to income and how that can create a better education is true. If you make a certain amount of money, your kid will not be stuck in a class with 40 students in textbooks from 1920. You know, the, the places with bigger tax bases, they don't deal with things like that. So, you know, I think we should have that conversation too. How do we change those things and how do we move forward? Because now, we, you know, we, we always talk about it and then now we have it written down. So how do we move forward? It's a good start. Thank you. Let me... Let me I'm going to now transition to provide a little bit about the, the larger context of Baltimore over, this, over the period of our children's growing up, but even going back a bit earlier. But I do want to mention before moving on that these are really, this is really about family advantage and family privilege. But at its root, it's a matter of parents using the means available to them to help their children. So that, I, don't, I don't see evil in any of this. I mean, what parent wouldn't want to do the same? The difficulty is that parents aren't all equally resourced and they don't have equal opportunities to help their children get ahead. When we talk to the parents, as we have over the years of these children, all of them, they all want the same thing for their kids. They want them to do well in school. They want them to be successful later in life. They want them to stay out of trouble. But some parents have resources and opportunities that they can provide for their children that others don't. So it's not a matter of, uh, of characterizing some parents whose children are doing well as somehow being you know, evil or horrible or abusive of, the, of, uh, of opportunities for others. But what we would want to do, I should think, uh, at the end of the day, if people, if people of goodwill at least, is to provide these additional opportunities for kids who are present don't have them, you know, to be helpful somehow. So the, as sociologists, um, we're interested in the larger social context, kind of the surrounding circumstances that frame everything that uh, children experience. And the relevant history goes back before our children started first grade in 1982. Uh, we think that this is highly relevant to the opportunities that are available to white men of working class background that aren't available to African American men of similar background. So here's Baltimore then. Uh, it may seem like ancient history, but really it was just the World War II mobilization and maybe for a decade after that Baltimore was the economic powerhouse of Maryland. I mean, hard to believe, but looks like most of us in the room are old enough to remember that time. If we, if we were here local. So that's an iconic image of Bethlehem Steel. At the peak of the World War II, it was the largest steel mill in the world. 35,000 workers there. And um, today, recently, uh, it's in bankruptcy and it's been broken up and sold off for scrap metal. So Beth Steel is no more. But at the time, Beth Steel and uh, employment on the, on the, on the, uh, down on the wharfs and in the automobile plants and in the uh, Airport, uh, air, airplane construction, uh, production facilities scattered in and about the city, provided a very comfortable standard of living for um, mainly white men at the time, uh, without the benefit of a college degree or even a high school degree. Often, they could earn uh, what's referred to in the literature as a living wage. A, a, a guy working steadily at, at in one of these places in, the, in this sector of the economy could afford to support a family comfortably with one just one wage earner. These jobs were often union protected, 
and provided good benefits. African Americans were present in all these in all these places, on the steel mills, on the docks, and in the auto assembly plants. But they were historically excluded from the labor unions, mostly, in many instances, explicitly so, and if not explicitly so, then tacitly so. And they typically were relegated to low-wage, uh, uh, low-skill work in these places. The 40s and the 50s, extending into the early 60s, this is really part of modern Baltimore, not ancient Baltimore. And in the framework of our study, it was the grandparents of our study children who were working in these places, not their great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. Um, in places like Best Steel, uh, hiring was often done word of mouth. Who you knew made a big difference. There were the union halls off the work site. There was a very vibrant, and still is actually, bar culture in working class Baltimore, where uh, job opportunities could pass around word of, word of mouth. And of course, during this era, there was very rigid racial, racial segregation, race, racial residential segregation, which, um, you know, if social networks count, and they do count, who you know is very important. Uh, these, uh, this, uh, the separation of African-American and white Baltimore really uh, uh, took African-Americans off the map when it came to being able to penetrate this kind of employment in any substantial numbers. So there's the Bestio and the vibrant industrial economy of the, of the 40s, 50s, spilling over into the 60s. And there's a typical uh, Baltimore row house with marble steps. And if you could really get up close and personal, you'd probably see a painted screen in there. So that's what life was pretty good for working class Baltimore, at least for white working class Baltimore back in the day. If we fast forward, here's another image, another iconic image of Baltimore. Uh, the glistening, gleaming inner harbor. It's a thing of beauty. And uh, my son-in-law took this picture, so if you like it, <laughs> he probably arranged to get you a, uh, a copy. So that's today's Baltimore. And it's not as though there's no work to be had in today's Baltimore, but the economy is fundamentally structured in ways that don't work well for many uh, working class families and young people. It's sometimes described as an hourglass economy. Big at the top, if you're prepared with a skill set to do well in the high-tech modern economy, there are good careers to be had. Bulging out at the bottom, where we have the low-wage, low-skill, low-benefit work that's there in abundance. That inner arbor gleams during the daytime, but after dark, uh, the custodial people come out and clean it up. And they go out and about and they try to remove the styrofoam cups from uh, the water, uh, janitorial uh, folks come out, the uh, security guards come out. There's a whole other sector of uh, employment that's typically hidden from view, uh, but very important to maintaining that economy, but still not very well re rewarded. What's missing in this hourglass economy is in the middle. Yeah. So those jobs, those union jobs uh, that paid well and provide steady work for 50,000, 60,000 of Baltimore's blue-collar workers have substantially evaporated. So the, the middle has been atrophied. Um, so Baltimore's modern economy nowadays is, is, is on the backbones of tourism, substantially. And what's referred to in the literature as the fire industries, the finance, insurance, and real estate. Fire industries, uh, those big office buildings, with lots of people working in them, and they're making a lot of money. Many of them are commuters, not all. But they're making money, they're not making things. And so what they do doesn't generate the kinds of employment opportunities that we had in abundance back in the day. 
when there was a, a, a blue-collar elite uh, created around the vibrant industrial economy. So here's a quote from a book that was written uh, reflecting on all this. It was published in 1987. Recall that our kids started first grade in 1982, so this is the reality of what was going on in and around them as they grew up. By the 1980s, Baltimore became, a, become two cities, a city of developers, suburban professionals, and back to the city gentry, and a city of impoverished blacks and displaced manufacturing workers who continue to suffer from shrinking economic opportunities, declining public services, and neighborhood distress. So our children, half of whom were urban disadvantaged as growing up in families of low income and uh, intermittent work experience, our, our children were trying to find themselves a toehold in this, uh, in this harsher, less welcoming economy of the modern Baltimore. Here's a, uh, let's skip over, let's see. Whoop, I lost it. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, I lost the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Come on. Oh, I see what I'm doing. Got it. <laughs> so, this is an excerpt from the Casey Foundation publication uh, that came out in 2010. Yeah, Casey Foundation is a very large, very wealthy foundation, which has its headquarters here in Baltimore. A perfect storm, they say, characterizing the transformation of Baltimore. Perfect storm of crippling trends and tragic events, the dramatic loss of manufacturing jobs and tax base, the ruinous riots of 1967 and 1968. Many of those uh, areas of East and West Baltimore, poor, East, poor black East and West Baltimore are still burned out. Uh, Baltimore Sun article from the time said that 300 small businesses had been shuttered by the riots, and most of them never to reopen. That's a big hit on a needy community. The exodus first of white and African-American middle-class families, the sequential epidemics of heroin, crack cocaine, and HIV, the intensified crime and gang activity that fed and feasted off the drug trade, and the activities of slumlords, property flippers, and predatory lenders. The end result has been an ever-deepening cycle of disinvestment and decline. So it's hardly a pretty picture. And, um, but I would add that it's, we have to be careful not to paint with too broad a brush. These were the externalities, but not everyone fell prey to the, uh, the difficulties that, uh, that prevailed and still prevail today in Baltimore. One of the things that we find when we, when we look into the neighborhood context where these children were living, very dramatic difference in the quality of the neighborhoods of uh, working-class, low-income African-Americans and working-class, low-income whites. I have a slide here, but it's too detailed, and I won't go into it. But what we find is, if you look, if you look at census data from 1980, which is right around the time of our children uh, getting launched, uh, the socioeconomic profile of these white and African-American low-income neighborhoods are practically interchangeable. Similar poverty rates, similar average levels of ed education, uh, similar median uh, household value. So you couldn't tell them apart. Uh, we're talking about places in terms of whites. I think everybody has a sense of where the African-American concentrations of African-American poverty are. We're talking about Curtis Bay, Brooklyn, Pigtown, Sandtown, maybe Remington and, and places like that. They're still with us, and they're still separate, substantially. So very similar socioeconomic profiles. Crime rates from official Baltimore City crime statistics in most, in most of their particulars, about double in the low-income African-American neighborhoods and in, compared to the low-income white neighborhoods. Rape, homicide, assaults, robbery, 
almost twice. The, the African-American low-income communities were dangerous places, much more so than the white neighborhoods. Also, uh, we were fortunate enough, we can't, I can't, we can't, my colleagues and I, collaborators and I can't take credit for this, but right around the same time in 1980, some researchers from the Hopkins School of Public Health did community surveys in 66 Baltimore neighborhoods scattered throughout the city. Our children started out in 20 neighborhoods scattered throughout the city, and we were able to match 18 of our 20 neighborhoods to these community surveys. So we were able to kind of append that information into our project for 18 of the 20 neighborhoods. And what we found, the, the surveys taught, uh, looked at, looked at asked, posed questions about social co cohesion in the neighborhood, uh, how safe do you feel going out during the day, how safe do you feel going out at night, uh, do neighbors look after neighbors? Do you have a friend that would take in the mail for you if you're away? Those kinds of things. Na neighborhood cohesion, uh, neighborhood solidarity. The working class white neighborhoods were much more cohesive across the board in these kinds of questions in the white neighborhoods. So there's a configuration or a profile here where, where you have to dig a little deeper than just looking at strictly economic considerations, but also see the infrastructure of neighborhood life and how it's different. Our reading of the literature identifies a number of considerations that we think kind of weigh in here on why poor black neighborhoods are more dangerous than poor white neighborhoods. And this has very, very real implications for the quality of life of children who are growing up in these communities. Urban why renewal. That, hmm? Why is that? Why are white neighborhoods more dangerous than... Uh... Well, I think I, I think there's some are considerations. And I've, it's... Uh, I, think, I think we... I think we managed to identify some of the important differences. Urban renewal displacement. James Baldwin, the, the famous uh, African-American poet and novelist, characterized urban re renewal as Negro removal. Negro removal. During a 20-year period from 1955 to 1975, there were roughly 70,000 families dislocated, forced to move uh, throughout Baltimore City for public works projects. Our famous Highway to Nowhere on the west side <laughs> being one that stands out uh, immediately, but also constructing schools, libraries, um, public housing. So there was a lot of demolition going on during that period of time. 70,000 families displaced uh, during that. 90% of them were African American. 90%. Urban renewal is Negro removal. Distraction. Well, scattered about. Uh, we do, uh, I don't have, I don't know to where, but I know from some to someplace else. Now, this highway to nowhere over on the west side, uh, it got stopped. That's Senator Mikulski's claim to fame was he helped rally the uh, Fells Point community to stop the highway to nowhere, but it got started before it got stopped. And there's a 1.3 mile, 1.3 mile stretch of highway that went right down the middle of that East Baltimore community. Before the highway construction, there was West, West Baltimore community. Thank you. Yes, I, I, my wife will tell you I have a terrible sense of direction. East and West are just baffling to me. But one of the things I do know is before that highway project set in, there were 30 pocket parks in that community. Pocket parks, little green islands where kids could go out and play and neighbors could hang out together. Every single one of them was obliterated by that highway project, fracturing community. Other considerations, I mentioned the urban riots of the 60s, which are confined to low-income African-American neighborhoods. And while we might understand the motivation behind this sort of unrest, it really, it really did great, grievous harm to those communities, never to, haven't yet bounced back. 
One result of all these things is the explosion of predatory cr crime. Social cohesion, the research literature says, helps tap down predatory crime. But when the communities are fractured, that's the opening for people to do nasty things. Barriers to employment, it's an obvious consideration. We, we, we hear a lot nowadays about food deserts, but there are also employment deserts throughout the city. Uh, middle class children are much more likely to find part-time work starting in middle grades and, and, and through high school than, than low-income children. And white children are more likely to be able to get part-time employment than African-American children. There just aren't places to work that are available to them. In, in the city of Baltimore? Throughout, in the city of Baltimore and places like Baltimore. Not exclusively Baltimore, but yeah. Well, you know, a lot of politics. Well, it's partly politics. We can have a conversation about that. Uh, but you know, the, I think the figure is that over the 30-year period, from roughly 1970 to the end of the century, 70%, no, I think it's 90% of retail that had been in Baltimore relocated outside the city to surrounding suburbs. So jobs were just disappearing. It's not just manufacturing jobs, but the kinds of places the kids can find work during, uh, during the summer. So there are, there, are, there are limited job opportunities, even, even just to pick up a few bucks to get your, to get, you know, if you've got a CD you want to buy or if you want to help your parents, it's, it's, hard, to, it's, hard, to be, it's hard to do that. So I mentioned some statistics. Here are some quotes from some, three of the study youngsters that, uh, that we talked to uh, along the way. These are both, the, all three of these are African-American from low-income neighborhoods. Um, I don't know, if you're interested, I can, you want to write to me, uh, I can send you the slideshow if you want to see the details of it. Uh, my, my email address is easy. It's my first name, Carl, K-A-R-L, at J-H-U for Johns Hopkins University E-D-U. But let me just share one of, one of these with you. By the way, I'm tethered to the micro microphone. I'm told I shouldn't move, so <laughs> I really wanted to get over there, but I'm not supposed to. Uh, the middle one, Sona. Where I lived, it was more like, I guess you'd say family-oriented, because everybody knew everybody. When you hear everybody talking about how someone would spank you, whether you were family or not, that's parents looking after their neighbor's kids. Well, that's what it was like on the block. And maybe one or other, two other parents was watching us and stuff. Then after a while, the neighborhood started going down. Basically, the kids were getting better and better. People you thought was really nice was changing. You know what I mean. Remember the Casey Foundation narrative about the invasion of drugs and other forms of disorganization, community disorganization. We heard these kinds of accounts time, time and again from people who were growing up in these circumstances. This is the lived experience of many of our youngsters. Hey, you want to jump in? Yeah, one of the key things um, that I want to say is if we just stepped away from the whole black and white thing, if you are in America and you don't have any opportunity, you are going to go crazy. You're going to go crazy. Like, it's, it's, it's some of those white areas that were, I think the term was more cohesive at night, I think if everyone there lost their jobs or, you know, didn't, you didn't have a way to make a substantial income and take care of their family, I think those neighborhoods would be a little less cohesive. So um, one of the biggest misconceptions, and, you know, I'm not saying this came no, no, out, it didn't, it, it didn't come out in a study or anything, is that 
a lot of these black people just don't want to work. And, you know, that's that's not true. Um, if anyone in here is hiring and they have like a black quota to meet, I can I can give you like 40 people right now who are qualified, never been to prison. They just aren't able to break through. So, um, no, I think it's I think I think the key is opportunity. A lot of times um, just the media in general will have us all caught up thinking that, you know, everything is always about race and. When it comes to opportunity, that's just, it's just not the case. Okay. Thank you. No, you're absolutely spot on. And actually, the, the wider literature, and we, we didn't get into this in a way that would be useful, but uh, in the wider literature, there are studies that, cite that Afri- show that African Americans who are without work are more likely to be looking for work than whites who are without work, and they're more likely they're more, they, they apply for jobs more often. So indeed, um, most poor folks don't want to be poor. It absolutely is. So that's the broader, you know, the from on high, you know, the 10,000 foot perspective about changes in Baltimore City and the neighborhood context of these children's uh, experiences growing up. I, I should say everything that I, in, in our study, the data that we bring to bear, is from uh, right around 1980-1982. So it's really talking about the first grade. What, what our children saw when they went out and about from home to go to school and on the way back. So it's, the, it's, it's their, their reality. Middle class advantage. We started working with these kids when they were cute and cuddly six-year-olds. <laughs> and, they, and you'd love every one of them. Um, uh, and you'd wish them all to to be able to own the world as, as young adults, but they couldn't all own the world. It's well known and it's documented in, in, in the experiences of our study youngsters that many poor children are challenged uh, by the expectations that are held out for them at school. Uh, they don't do well at school. Not all, there are exceptions to rule, and some kids, you know, they call it, the literature refers to them as resilient youth, kids who are able to o- overcome the odds and be successful in school and later in life, and there are many, many, many of them. But. Sociologists, we look at general patterns and general trends, we try to establish the rules and then we try to understand the exceptions to them, but the rules are very real. What we find for our study youngsters, we had access to both Baltimore City school system records, so we had standardized achievement scores, we had report card marks, we had deportment notations and lots of other useful and interesting information. The urban disadvantaged children, when they started first grade, the fall of first grade, the very first testing occasion for them, scored a half grade level behind in reading comprehension. Right out of the gate, these children, black and white, were already at a disadvantage academically. Half grade level behind. Half grade level doesn't sound like an insurmountable obstacle, but after five years, when they finished elementary school, the typical low-income child or urban disadvantaged child was three grade level equivalents behind. That half grade level difference exploded over the five years of elementary school to three grade levels. In the Baltimore City uh, grade level structure, the end of fifth grade is just before you transition to sixth grade typically, so moving into middle school. It doesn't augur well if someone who's about to begin middle school is reading at a third or fourth grade level, whereas a middle class child might be already reading reading at a sixth grade level. That achievement gap portends uh, difficulties down the road. And we see difficulties. Poor children, in our study group, are more likely to be retained in grade, uh, held back a grade, 17% in first grade, in fact. 
And by the end of fifth grade, half the urban disadvantaged had to repeat at least one grade. They were more likely to be assigned to receive special education services. And when they got to middle school, they were more likely to be assigned to low-level remedial classes, since they didn't have the skill set to, to do much more than that. And when they got on to high school, they were more likely to be in a general program or a vocational track as opposed to a college preparatory program study. So this all cascades. It's a long-term process, and you can see how it unfolds. The interesting thing, well, there are a lot of interesting things in that, but that three, that increase in the achievement gap across social lines from a half a grade level to three grade levels, we were able in this research to distinguish school year learning from summer learning. There's a whole other side to our research studies focused on summer learning and its implications. It really is quite striking. Almost all of the increase in that achievement gap that emerges over the elementary school years happens during the summer months when poor children aren't in school and, we don't have, and they don't have access to the resources and the learning opportunities and enrichment experiences that the school is able to bring to bear. Middle-class children continue to build their, their skill set. We're talking about reading comprehension. You know? Middle-class parents obsess on that. You know, they do everything imaginable to help move their kids ahead. And they continue to, to, to build up their academic skills during the summer. So the schools provide a really valuable, invaluable service. I, I'm of the opinion that the, the public schools in Baltimore City are doing a much better job than is generally recognized or they're giving credit for. But there are challenges when, you're, when your student population is uh, almost 80% low income and 90% low income minority. It's not being minority. It's being low income. I'm sorry, there looks like there's a hand over Yeah, Dr. Austin. Sure. Um, I wonder if you would comment on, if you have this available on the tip of your tongue, to comment on the, the achievement gap that actually begins before children enter, enter school, or at the very beginning, yeah. like kindergarten and first grade, where children of low income and poverty are behind the ball from, from the get-go. Oh, that's absolutely the case. You know, our, our, our project well, you know, the base, it starts in first grade, so we really can't extend back before that uh, in terms of our own research, but there's a large literature that shows that there's a, there are national studies that look at kindergarten children and poor children and disadvantaged minority children are behind in terms of the, their assessed school readiness. You know, it's hard to test a five-year-old in the same way. Um, and then if you go even back in the earlier experiences, there are vast differences in language exposure and the quality and character of the spoken word in middle-class family environments as opposed to working-class and welfare-level families. So this isn't something that just starts in the, the day they appear in, in, at the schoolhouse door at the fall of first grade. It's something that builds up um, from day one, as you say. And there's a lot of interest in, in high-quality preschool experience you know, in, in our upcoming election, that's a large issue, uh, universal preschool. And um, a good high quality preschool experience can, can be very useful. Um, I don't want to get into politics. But you're right, it's not just something that happens when children are in school. It actually, what, what, what schools are asked to do is to uh, address the challenges in children's lives that uh, occur outside of school in these high poverty communities and in, and in poor households. So, we've see, we, I've got this list, but it's actually, it's all well documented in the book. We see how this happens. This, this, the achievement gap is, uh, involves uh, diverging trajectories of achievement test scores, but in point of fact, in terms of school success, it's the same, it's broader than that. These children are moving in very different directions. 
over time. When we get to the post-secondary year, so one issue in terms of the college attendance, the 4.4% BA degree completion, or the 5.1 or 2% if you include two-year degrees. So there are real, there are, there's, prepare, there's issues of academic preparation when you get to college. But I'm convinced, oh, I'm convinced because of those seasonal comparisons of school year learning versus summer learning that children, by and large, are capable learners. They're keeping up during the school year. They're falling behind when they're cut off from the school's resources. So it's not a matter of these, these poor children poor minority children, but also poor white children, not having the ability to succeed at school. It's the circumstances that present themselves in their lives throw up very daunting interference. But there's other kinds of interference that, uh, that adds on when you get to the post-secondary level. Uh, I mentioned that almost a third of our urban disadvantaged children start down the college path, but very few of them are able to see it through successfully to completion. And time and time again in our discussions with them, we heard stories about challenges outside school that weigh on them. Uh, family responsibilities. Have a child that needs their attention, can't just walk away from your children. Or an ailing parent that needs your attention. Or a family that needs your financial help. Or you might have to step out of, of college for a time in order to recharge your savings so you can afford the next semester's uh, tuition or books. This is recurrent. And it's almost, it's. I don't want to say it's universal, but we see it with great frequency in the experiences of this youngster, these youngsters who are no longer youngsters anymore. Now they're grown, growing up, practically grown up. These challenges outside school, I think, are way particularly on the urban disadvantaged, and they're very and they're formidable and daunting. We, in the book, we talk about these two characteristic pathways into and through college. Uh, one is the middle class pattern, and this is we see this in our in the experiences of our children, but also in the broader literature. We call it the fast track into and through college. So children of middle class background are more likely to begin college immediately after high school. They're more likely to stay continuously enrolled all throughout until they complete the degree. They're more likely to attend full-time rather than part-time, and they're more likely to be residential students rather than commuter students. That's four or five considerations. Middle class family advantage. Their parents can help them do all those things. Each and every one of those things separately is a risk factor for not finishing college. And if you have that profile, all five or four to five, the odds are really quite daunting of being able to see it through. Poor children are more likely to follow what the slow meandering path into and through college. So you just turn all those things on their head. They're more likely to interrupt their education between high school and college. They're more likely to stop out for a time if they were enrolled in college. They're more likely to be attending part-time and they're much more likely to be commuter students. And there's also the obligation to work along the way. Factor that in. Although the vast majority of college students now work while they're in school, but some of them work because they want to have some extra cash, and others work because they need to work. And so there are differences there as well. Anyway, the slow meandering path is not a very does not augur well for college completion, and that that plays in very heavily in these very dismal, dismal, dismal statistics that we've seen here. I'm oh, sorry, did someone? I, th I thought I heard a. No, that's it. Okay. I, I had to work. I had, we all, uh, probably everybody in this room at some point had to work while they were in school, but it's. You know what? I was big out of work. Yeah, exceptions to the rule. <laughs> so, anyway, here's a, here's a uh, Again, we, we, we included these little sketches or snippets to try to put a little bit of flesh and bones on the, the experiences. You know, we've got these statistical profiles, but we, we want to be mindful of the fact. That there are real people at issue here. 
So this is uh, from a conversation with Kim. I think in the book she's now called Tammy. Uh, <laughs> these are pseudonyms. There's a, I'll let you in on a, on a little insider story. So all the, all the names that we use in the book are people that worked on the project with us along the years. It was a way of saying thank you because we couldn't do it for everybody. Uh, anyway, so Kim, living in a low-income, working-class Baltimore West Side neighborhood, uh, she had a baby when she was 11, not at all uncommon, but she managed to graduate on time and with a very strong academic record. It says she told us that she was able to trade off her parenting responsibilities with the father of her baby. Um, somebody's looking perplexed here. So. Grade. 11th grade. 11th grade. What did I say? So age oh, 11. No, not, not, not age 11. Yeah, I was looking like that. <laughs> Although I must say, our, our first known birth was a 12-year-old. In the, in the experience of these youngsters, so, but not 11. And that was, 12 was an outlier. Anyway, 11th grade, yes. She had a baby in 11th grade, but she, 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 she finished high school and did quite well academically. And she started in a community, local community college. And then things got complicated for her. She had to stop out because she had to look after her daughter and she needed, was worried about finances. And along the way, she got a job working in a law firm and they provided some educational benefits so she had some help with tuition. And that actually helped her achieve some clarity of purpose because she decided she wanted to go into law. And it really helps if you're going to college to know why you're there. Some people don't. Oh, lots of people don't, absolutely. But, but Kim did. <laughs> and even with that, she wasn't able to see it through. At age 28, when we last talked to her, she didn't have her community college degree yet. She said she, uh, what is she, she'd like to get a doctoral degree. Actually, she's a JD degree. She wants, still wants to be an attorney, but she expects to get, make it only so far as the BA degree. This is age 28, still without her AA degree. And here's what she says. Just sometimes I get frustrated because like when I want something, I want it now. You know, I want, and there are a lot of things that stand in my way. Like, I mean, I don't mean to say that she stands in her way, referring to her daughter, but she has to come first, you know. I'm sure if I didn't have her, I'd probably be in school right now. But she has her. You know, she can't, you can't roll back the clock. And that throws up interference, very practical challenges. And we heard these kinds of stories time and time and time again. So it's not just a matter of these kids being poorly prepared to make it in college. There are all these externalities in their life that just follow them all the way along and throw up very daunting challenges. Middle-class kids, and, they're all, and I don't want to paint too, too rosy a picture there either, and middle-class kids often have problems and challenges along the way too, but they're qualitatively different than what has to be managed. I'll give you a, I'm going to, how am I doing here today? Oh, so much time to wind down. <laughs> give me a couple more minutes. Uh, so problems and challenges. Lots of young people nowadays stumble along the way. You know, no big surprise there. Uh, often they recover. And poor kids recover too. Most poor kids who get in trouble with the law or get involved in this or get in that, they outgrow it. Most, not all. There are career criminals. But they mature and they get on with their lives. When we ask these youngsters at age 28, about what we refer to as problem behaviors. We asked them about binge drinking. We asked them about marijuana use. We asked them about heavy drug use. We asked them about uh, arrests and convictions. Also chewing tobacco and smoking on a regular basis. But middle-class men, middle-class white men, actually I should say, to clarify it, have the highest self-reported rates of binge drinking, of marijuana use, 
and of heavy drug use, middle-class white men. They're often doing those things in the context of college, and they, it, doesn't, or it doesn't usually throw their life, life off course. And they have parents who can help shelter them if things go wrong. Middle-class white men, highest self-reported. Next highest, working-class white men. Second highest rates of self-reported binge drinking, marijuana use, and heavy drug use. Working-class white men. When we look at the employment experience of working-class white men and working-class African-American men, and this also speaks to the opportunity, what we find is that not having a high school degree and having a criminal justice record is more of an impediment to finding work for African-American men of working-class background than for white men of working-class background. More of an impediment. So when black men of modest means, of working-class background, stumble along the way, it haunts them for the rest of their lives because it creates problems for them, finding good employment opportunities. We know from the wider literature, not our study, but we read widely, that um, uh, employers in the non, prospective employers in the non-college uh, labor force are much more likely to ask about a criminal record of African Americans than of whites. And we also know that in that broad sector of the economy, hiring is often done word of mouth. And again, employer surveys document, and this has been documented time and time again, it's amazing how forthcoming people are when you ask these sensitive questions, but it's been documented time and time again that employers harbor, not all, but many, uh, misgivings and doubts about the work ethic and honesty of African-American men, young African-American men. So if, if prospective employers are reluctant to take on these guys, you've got white guys who are well prepared because they've been doing this kind of work all along to step in and take those jobs. So there's an informal pattern here, moving beyond school, that really does work to the benefit of white men of working class background and to the, and to the disadvantage of African American men of working class background. And there's, there's more to be said, but I think I've probably overextended extended my stay. But there is a question. In that context, I think the omission of the uh, Clinton administration's war on drugs and the much higher rate of incarceration of African Americans for mere possession yeah. uh, was a very uh, you know, harmful thing to black Americans. Oh, yeah, absolutely right. Actually, there was an ACLU report uh, just last year about marijuana arrests throughout the, in big cities throughout the country. And Baltimore had the distinction. We, we often pride ourselves on exceptionalism, U.S. exceptionalism. <laughs> this isn't one that's quite so cheery. Baltimore had the uh, distinction of having the largest disparity in arrest rates by race of any of the large cities in the country. I think, and I may not have the actual number, it was like 90 to 90% to 10% African-American and white arrests for marijuana, whereas the use of marijuana is about equal, even, for African-Americans and whites. So yeah, this is a terrible tragedy. And it has implications for family life that trickles, just not just employment opportunities, but for family life. I can't get into that. I do have some slides about families. You know, for the families of, the, of our study children growing up. But let me stop at that. And oh, yes. If I, if I, uh, I, read, three, I read three books. Shelved out there in the yeah. uh, New Jim Crow. Right. Uh, the Tellers down in my neighborhood in Long Shadow. And what, what, what challenges me is that these systems seem to be clearly arrayed against uh, uh, persons of a particular uh, income level and, unfortunately, a racial group. 
Yeah. So the question then becomes. Those are three good books, by the way. I'm glad that ours is in the mix. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah yours, yours, baby cry. Now, now, so there clearly needs to be some change in systems Absolutely. to get better outcomes. Yeah. What do you propose there? Well, and we don't, you know, we're looking at it from the ground up, but there is all this, this broad historical and social context of it, the large family. I mean, here's a quote from, a, it's, it's a quote that's in the book, but it really is very revealing and I think spot on. Uh, sociologist at Duke University, Eduardo Benilia Silva, Silva, Silva. He says the racial practice, and he's looking back historically over the same, roughly same period of time. He says the racial practices and mechanisms that kept blacks subordinated changed from overtly and eminently racist to covert and in, indirectly racist. And I think that's a very telling and revealing um, insight. So back in the day, when African Americans were excluded from the labor unions and relegated to low wage work in the industrial core of Baltimore, and were excluded from, well, were racially segregated in terms of neighborhoods and schools. You know, there was there was this structure of law and practice that was the understood way of doing things. Now, not everybody was happy with it, but it was there, it was in place, and you could see it. Now, I think we're in 50 years later, we're still wrestling with the legacy of all that because you can no longer legally exclude minorities from labor unions. You can no longer do redlining in bank lending practices and so forth. But when, when, uh, when houses in tightly uh, knit white working class communities change hands through word of mouth, and when uh, job opportunities uh, uh, are carried forward word of mouth, informal hiring, these informal practices that are historically situated in these structures have the exact same consequence as they continue to limit opportunities for poor folks and for poor minority folks. And I think actually that's a much tougher nut to crack because I'm going to, I'm going to wind, go back to where I started. These two stories are really about parents trying to do right by their kids. And you can't fault parents for that. I wouldn't fault parents for doing that. But then the reality of it is that there's more to the story than that because there are reasons why some parents are better able to help their children. And in, this, in, the, uh, in the blue collar economy that African Americans still today find challenging to penetrate, it has to do with these informal practices of hiring and networking and so forth. And, and, um, and those are much more challenging. You can eliminate law. You can, you know, you can write laws. No, you, you know, you have, we have fair employment practice laws, you know, so you can't discriminate. And we have residential, you know, fair housing laws. So, you know, that, that's, a different, that's an earlier era, but we're still living with the consequences of that. And uh, to make it go away is a... I have some thoughts about ways to approach the problem, but I, let's, let's first have, take it from here and then in the back over there. Yes? Um, I just have a, a quick question about... Oh. Hi. Um, I just have a quick question about the, uh, this, all the school studies that were done. I know that you, you referenced Baltimore City schools and data collected and whatnot. I'm just curious how much time you actually spent in the schools in a classroom, in like not just data from the school systems, well, but actually in the school and they also then in their homes and communities following kids home, et cetera. Very good. I mean, these, this is a survey research project, a very ambitious one, okay. and it went on for many years. We got into the schools because we did our interviewing in the schools. We got into the homes often because we often talked to the parents in their homes. But I have to say, this was not, these were not observational. I mean, we didn't go in there to do deep, intensive, you know, observational studies. So we don't have 
an abundance of information about the quality of the school experience or the quality of the parenting and, and what happens inside the home. That's, that's something, you know, there are studies that use different approaches that do get closer to the, what do you say, the lived experience of children at home and in school. This isn't one of those. Uh, there is a trade-off of breadth for depth. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's the answer. We don't, we, we got into schools, we got into homes frequently because we did this for over many years. We interviewed the, the study participants themselves probably 20 times from first grade into to age 28. And we talked with their parents um, probably a dozen times, 10, 12 times through 10th grade and their teachers through ninth grade. So it's very intensive and we've got a lot of information. Uh, but it wasn't of that character. Yeah. I, I had asked, I said I would go to that fellow, yeah, but then we'll come back to This is a really important study and a wonderful book, and I, I don't want to downplay that at all. But I, I realized after I read the book, I felt a little dissatisfied, and I realized it's a sociological study. It is that. But I was reminded of what Mark said about the philosophers interpreting the world, yeah. and the point is to change it. Um, there seems to me to be implicit in it what I think Baltimore's really good at, which is shying away from the term racism. Now you're one of the great geniuses of American society, I think, is to persuade us of these national myths. And I think a new national myth is that racism is subtle and indirect. I don't think that removing voting rights and attacking unions and doing all the other things that are pretty pretty overt in the in the last decade, I don't think they're subtle or covert no. at all. Now, the other thing I'd say is that um, it, it seems clear to me that the public sector of education versus the private sector. I think it's true still to say that Baltimore has the highest density of private schools <coughs> for a city of size in the country. And as long as you have that, and many other schools were built out of white flight, as long as you have that disparity, we're going to be in the situation we're in, which is that I work in the school system. So I know that there's a racial subtext to almost everything that goes on in the school system. And you only have to drive through Roland Park and other communities to see the visual image that our kids get daily about what matters in this society. And I, I think that's an yeah, no, You're absolutely that, right on both, on both scores. Those of us who read these studies need to think about Well, race, racism is, is, is alive and well, absolutely, and it permeates everything, you know, everything of consequence in the modern era, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we do, along the way, I think it's in chapter eight, we kind of, kind of, we have a couple pages where we talk about where that presents itself in everyday life. But we, you know, the book is the kind of book that it is. It is, a, it is an academic research, highly readable, I'd like to say. I think it's <laughs> but it is what it is. So we, 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 uh, we my colleagues and I, uh, we thought long and hard about terminology. And so we felt extremely comfortable using, referring to the descriptive account of white working class privilege as white privilege, because it is that, objectively that. Racism and discrimination require another kind of layer of data. I mean, we, we don't, you can't see that, as, at least not in the way that we can see what we saw. And so we did set boundaries on what we knew and what we, what we could say with authority as opposed to what we thought and understood. But you're absolutely right. <laughs> These are real issues. And, and they are, I think they're in the book, but they might be more, they might be latent. Maybe if we ever get invited to do a second edition, we can draw them out. But they're absolutely so there. It's an important book. I, I really think that Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Actually, I want to see if the, uh, we have time. I'm not in any hurry, but Dee, did you want to jump in? Or no, I, I can't say about it myself. That was, that was perfect. Um, 
we all need to be more solutionists and just driven towards finding solutions to these problems. You know, like I said, it's important that we have them down in physical form. But, you know, what what's the answer? Because right now it kind of feels like, you know, social reproduction is very real and social mobility is a myth for most people from these areas. Um, yes, sir. Yes. Um, did your research look at the issues or uh, what was the impact of intervention programs, not just from the school system, but just uh, rites of passage or intervention, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, leadership programs, all that type of thing? Sadly, yeah. that's a, there are lots of holes. You know, if I, yeah. uh, if I had, if I, we could, if I could go back thirty years <laughs> and do do things the right way. Uh, that would be front and center. I'd love to know more about the, program, the programs that our children participated in and whether in it they were in any sense transformative. I will say back in the 80s, at least in the elementary school years, there wasn't as much of that going on as there is today. But that's not to say we shouldn't have been monitoring it. But unfortunately, we... So, so in, even in the, uh, in the reporting, uh, young people never re responded or caught, talked about any of their uh, programs or issues that they were dealing with in terms of getting support of yeah. any sort? We didn't ask about that in our structured interviews, and it didn't come up hardly ever in our more free form. Those quotable quotes that I think are really quite riveting, and they're interspersed throughout the book, uh, we did. We had conversations with, uh, with 160, 120 of the study participants that were tape recorded and then transcribed. And so those are very valuable. You know, they're, just, they're just so full of insight. Um, but, but these issues did not come up in those discussions, and so it's a big question mark. I don't have anything to say. Okay. Uh, let's go in front. Yes, you, and then be right behind you. Well, we can do it in either order. <laughs> You've got a oh. microphone coming. Uh, hi, when you said that um, you're convinced that summer learning is the critical difference between these two groups. Well, is a critical difference. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, could you speak at all to the role that public libraries can play in alleviating Oh, yeah, that? summer learning doesn't happen only in schools. Good for you. Um, here we are. You know, how can we not, how can we not talk about libraries? Yeah, there, this is a different talk, and if Judy wants to have me back, we can talk about summer learning and what we learned from the research. Um, if you've heard the expression summer slide or summer setback, we coined those, you know, so we, we have been players in this, and, and it's very pleasing to me that we've, you know, we've been able to contribute to those discussions. Um, from the broader research literature on what helps move kids ahead over the summer months, what stands out most prominently is going to the library, and taking books home from the library, and reading books over the summer. So you know, if, I, if there was a prescription, you know, if you could only do one and, do one, and one thing only, I would hope we wouldn't be so limited, but that would be very right at the top of the agenda. But I have to say, it's not as simple as just getting a book in the kids' hands. There are all kinds of real. I mean, the, the the reading material has to be grade has to be a skill level appropriate. This is from the research literature. It's, it's also intuitive. If a book's too easy, they're not going to get much out of it. If a book's too challenging, it's going to be discouraging. So you have to find the sweet spot. And often parents aren't in a good place to. You know, they don't know how to do that. Calibrate it well. And so they need help even with, it's not just a matter of accessing libraries and getting a library card. You need help in, in kind of structuring this experience so that it really is going to be most beneficial for children. But that's a key. And libraries, boys and girls, I mean, there are all kinds of places where you can encourage summer learning to keep children engaged uh, over the summer months who, uh, who otherwise, without, without access to public and, and, and kind of private, private interventions, would really be cut off from learning opportunities. Uh, yes, the woman behind you, I think, and then... 
Sure. Your work is really uh, remarkable. Oh, the woman in front of you, then the woman behind you, <laughs> Sherry. I, I, um, I, I think you're opening up a little bit of a can. I hope I'm not opening up. No, 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 we're, but it's all up for grabs. I'm speaking as another academic uh, interested in motivating students to pursue science, mm -hmm. and uh, yet the work that. Uh, this represents is have many, many well-known, well-documented aspects to it. And so it begs for where are the next steps, not just, you know, narrow on one particular study, but also in terms of the motivation of our students in advanced academic Absolutely. pursuits. Because I see a huge gap between, you know, being very comfortable in detailed scientific information. But if you raise the issue of advocacy, there is a little bit of stepping back. Because our careers in academia are not really built on how much we've changed the world, mm -hmm. but how many papers we've written, how, much <laughs> how, many, how many books we've written. Yes, that's and, it. And sometimes how many books. And, yeah. and, might be in an area like this, really time to start yep. unpacking those options. Oh, you're absolutely, so you know, the first rule, first rule is that an engaged learner is the best learner. You know, you really do have to capture kids' energies and, and bring them on board uh, as partners in the process. And that's why not any old summer program or after school program or preschool program will do the job. It has to be a really strong one that brings the children on board and in the ideal, their parents as well. And uh, I tend to focus on the foundational skills. You know, you can do STEM and it's being done well, uh, science, technology, education, and math in the early grade levels. But even before you get to that, reading comprehension, you know, being able to, being able to do basic uh, four-function work with numbers, addition, subtraction, division, multiplication. You know, there's a foundation that has to be laid. And we never give up on anybody. It's never too late to recover, I, I say that, and I mean it sincerely. But if poor children, and any child, it's not just poor children this one. once you've fallen far behind, it's exceedingly difficult to keep up, to catch up. Yeah. So, second principle, uh, prevention is better, more, if more desirable than having to do remediation. So starting early and doing it intensively in a way that's going to work well for, for many, many children is really the first line of attack as far as I'm concerned. And then you can, you can graft all kinds of things onto it. But. Yes, sure. um, you spoke about the, the small percentage of disadvantaged African-Americans who completed college. And I'm just wondering, did you identify in your research what the contributing factors were for them in terms of their com completing college? You know, it's such a small group. <laughs> it's, it really is hard to generalize. I mean, I say, I wish I, could, I wish I could paint a picture, but it's not that easy because there's so few. Um, but I think it is fair to say that the things that privilege middle-class children all along the way, you know, lots of poor kids do very well by the way. They keep up academically. They are engaged learners and highly motivated, and they get good grades and so forth. So the kids who are successful in school, K through 12, are the ones who have the best prospect of doing well post-secondary level. That may seem self-evident. I mean, I think it is self-evident, but it's, it's also true. And so our kids, uh, poor kids who complete the BA degree are, are more likely that they have, some, they have somewhat stronger academic records, K through 12. 
Um, but everybody, you know, they need help. So also managing these various externalities that we pointed out is, is it has nothing to do with academic preparation or skill. They've got challenges in their lives and kind of helping them manage those. Yeah, you know, I, I don't mind, uh, I try not to get, uh, this is the academic researcher talking, I try to stay clear of politics when I'm doing this kind of presentation. Um, but college enrollment rates dropped way off 30, 35 years ago when federal financing, when federal uh, funding for disadvantaged children switched from scholarships to loans. That happened during the Reagan administration. So, so I, I mean, there are things we can do with I mean, public policy. Excuse me, I just wanted to say that I think that we need to start wrapping this up so we have time for book sales and oh, book, book signing, sales. which is an important part of the program. And also, Dee, did you have anything you wanted to say in conclusion? Yeah, I think the first step is what we're doing right now is acknowledging that there's a problem, um, like one of the people in the audience said earlier. Uh, the second you say America has flaws, you know, everyone stands up and you know, they call you a traitor or they say you hate your country or they say you're a horrible person and that's not the case. Um, how can you ever, ever, ever make your country be the best place it can be if you don't recognize its flaws and then try to solve them? Wow. Okay. Good, good night, Thank you so much to both of you.